Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, August 17th, 2021. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And joining us today, uh, 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 big, big cheese at the American Enterprise Institute, editor of National Affairs and author of Commentary's lead article in the September 2021 issue, Yuval Levin. Hi, Yuval. Thanks Hello, for coming John. back to join us. Thanks for having so, me. We are going to spend much of the day discussing Yuval's uh, article, What We Got Right in the COVID Fight. But before that, obviously, we have to talk about the president's speech yesterday afternoon uh, about the um, unfolding uh, horror in Afghanistan. Yuval, uh, one of your main issues uh, as, a, as a public intellectual over the last uh, decade has been the crisis in America when it comes to faith in our institutions. And it seems to me that obviously the political system uh, as a broadly put as a, as an institution in the United States uh, is the is the one that has maybe lost the most faith. And I think yesterday you saw one of the reasons why uh, in Biden's very peculiar speech in which he said the buck stops with me and then said that the reason that all this terrible stuff is happening is because the the Afghans stink and they stink and they don't know how to be an army and they didn't they didn't step up to the plate like he thought they were gonna and Trump made a bad deal and uh, and we shouldn't have been nation building in the first place. And and he was handed, you know, uh, I'm sorry to put it this way, a shit sandwich. And he is completely comfortable in everything that he's done, even though he admits that maybe it all went down a little faster than he um, expected. So in the in the buck stops with him category, uh, there was a lot of not buck stopping with himism in that speech and that it leads you to say, well, why should people have faith in America's institutions if this is the way the president uh, acts uh, when faced with um, a very public refutation of the thing that he just insisted on doing? Yeah, look, I think sometimes the reason we don't trust our institutions is very simply that they're not trustworthy. And uh, we saw an example of that here. I mean, this was a very strange presidential statement, as you say, on its face, saying the buck stops with me, but all these everybody else is, has gotten this wrong. And so the, it's not actually my fault. And then he ended by saying, again, the buck stops with me. But when you step back and, and, and think about what he was saying in terms of his job, his core job as president, I think it's all the more pathetic. What, what he was describing was a set of circumstances, real world conditions that he faced as chief executive when he made this decision and when his administration set about to execute it. His job, the president's job, is to deal with real world circumstances on behalf of the country. More than it is to set the direction of public policy, which he does together with Congress, his core job is execution. That's why we call him the executive. It's to make practical judgments about real world circumstances and act accordingly to advance the country's interests. And what he was telling us yesterday was that he failed precisely on that ground, <laughs> that there were all these circumstances and they're the reason why he couldn't do his job. Well, dealing with those is his job. And some of the particulars were just amazing. I mean, the notion that they told me they would fight, but then they didn't fight. 
as if he or no one around him thought that people saying, yes, we'll, we'll die so that you can have an orderly withdrawal, you know, they might not mean that. Um, being president requires you to take the world seriously and to be ready for unexpected things and to deal with circumstances. And what he was saying yesterday was that he failed. And it's true, he failed. Abe, um, you, you were, I think, struck yesterday by the fact that Biden um, elucidated or, or enumerated, I should say, um, all of the terrorist threats in the world outside of Afghanistan as if to say, because there are all these other threats, it makes sense for us to create another one. Can you maybe parse what he was thinking when he did that? Well, uh, to be honest, I think that was Noah's point, but uh, oh, okay, but but I can but, still talk uh, to it, and I and I have another point as well. Okay. Um. Yeah. I mean, I think I think uh, from his perspective, that was a way of um, uh, trying to divert attention. From from the debacle, which I think was kind of the entire point of his speech, um, uh, it was to say, "Look, uh, we have you know uh, we have uh, jihadist groups uh, materializing and mobilizing all over the place. Uh, let's not get hung up over here." Um, it was a, it was a sort of sleight of hand. Uh, don't don't look here. Uh, uh, look over there. But as a as a practical matter. And as um, as an approach to terrorism, you're, you're precisely right. This this only makes everything absolutely worse. On on the point about um, uh, uh, the buck stops here, what what got me was that I saw a lot of people coming to the the defense of Biden to Biden's defense after this. They liked the speech, particularly what I saw people were saying things uh, like, um, "I think this was the first honest." speech that uh, I've seen any president give on Afghanistan. Uh, Biden leveled with us. For, for once, someone told us the truth about Afghanistan. And what I think they were saying, first of all, these are people who were uh, generally against uh, the war in Afghanistan to begin with. And what they, were, what they were responding to was the extraordinary heartlessness of Biden's speech, um, which, which, which really struck me, which was about Look, you see, these people can't even defend themselves. So let's not get weepy here. Let's not look at these images and and you know tear our garments and uh, you know get consumed with the with the parade of horror because that parade is going to continue. Uh, this had to be done, um, and they are taking that heartlessness for honesty, um, and that is a big mistake. Mistake, especially considering how bluntly dishonest he was in many parts of the speech, including about. Um, how um, uh, 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 the 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 backlog for pe for Afghani's wanting to get out of the country um, doesn't really exist. It's a question of they didn't really want to get out until the last second. This is flatly untrue. There's there's a uh, there there have been a, a list of tens of thousands of people long who have been trying to get out of the country um, that that has been that has been. Uh, backlogged and and the idea also just the very idea that they that that the Afghanis aren't fighting um, part of that has to do with the fact that they were trained to fight alongside America and American air power and uh, this is a point that Eli Lake has, has made recently in something he wrote and uh, American contractors who were servicing uh, the, the that air power have been pulled out so they're not even we we, we left them unable to do what we asked them to assure us they would do.
Yeah, two, three, three points briefly on that. First of all, <clears throat> that speech yesterday, um, and it's remarkable, and maybe you're right, that, that Joe Biden is sacrificing his core competency, right, which is being this squishy uh, ball of pure compassion, like just just warm white empathy, light. Empathy. His empathy was right, was right for the moment. That was and the there was none of, none of that. So cold and callous, and uh, you know, a, a realistic perspective on this, which is uh, just a way of saying. You know, we're going to elide events that we don't like and, and emphasize the sort of stuff that justifies this action. Second, on the terrorism thing, <laughs> there is a piece in The Washington Post out this morning, which is positively chilling, um, quoting European officials and, and intelligence officials in the Middle East who are picking up all sorts of chatter all across the jihadist spectrum, saying, you know, that this momentum is a force multiplier. And this is, is just shot a new, uh, you know, bolt of energy through the jihadist movement that they want. Everybody wants to go stop going to Iraq, stop going to Syria, go to Afghanistan, make Afghanistan the heart of the jihadist movement and export terrorism from there, demonstrating the United States is weak. And we can we can strike from outside Afghanistan once again, everything that everybody says is, is probably, you know, inevitable in this sort of thing. And lastly, there's this talking point that uh, I think Matt Iglesias um, devised and it has taken over center left opinion now because it is, is a really fun and compelling idea that I don't think makes any sense, which is <clears throat> because of Donald Trump's uh, peace agreement with the Taliban in uh, February of or February, March of 2020. The, that's why we have no casualties over the course of the last 17 months. It was always doomed to fail. 2019 was a bad year for Americans. There were 20 some odd casualties in, in, in combat in 2019. And it was just going to be that way again and in per perpetuity. Um, and it strikes me as false, false and fanciful, in part because uh, U.S.-led airstrikes really never let up. And the tempo of those airstrikes accelerated in October and November of 2020. Close air support, as you were saying, uh, Abe, is why you know we were able to do what we did, which is retreat behind high walls and allow the Afghan National Army to do most of the fighting. But without that close air support, which Joe Biden maintained all the way up until May of this year, when we started withdrawing troops and sacrificing air bases and so, you know, handing them over to the ANA, that's when everything started to crumble when we withdrew air support. So it's not as though we weren't executing strikes on Taliban positions. We were. We were just letting the Afghan National Army do the on-the-ground fighting. Christine, on the on the counterterrorism point that, that Noah brings up, right, that, that there was this Washington Post story where the former counterterrorism chief of the CIA in Afghanistan says uh, – this is an incredibly bleak moment. We've gone from having a counterterrorism capability in Afghanistan to having none because we've pulled out. Biden yesterday made the point that what all he wants is counterterrorism. His strategy is counterterrorism. And if the Taliban become terrorist, <clears throat> woe betide them because ooh, we're gonna we're ooh boy. They're going to send are a very firm counter, letter. Are we going to counter terrorism the crap out of them? Well, so, from where exactly? Under what conditions exactly? What is our what what is our capability to go into Afghanistan and do counter terrorism actions? Where do the people go come from? How do they cross into the border? Where do the where does the intelligence countries, come from? Yeah, and over which countries do our planes fly and 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 where do they refuel if they're not refueling in the air it afghanistan is not strategically nicely located where aircraft carriers can you know 
park outside and work their will as they would. It is a it is a bizarre set of circumstances for Biden to claim that he is doing this as a counterterrorism to recommit us to counterterrorism when all we were doing in Afghanistan was counterterrorism by this point. Well, they, if, you, uh, if you if you ca- characterize the Taliban as a terrorist group, our entire mission in Afghanistan was counter-terrorist. It was not nation-building. It had long since ceased to be nation-building, if it ever was, and we could talk about that a little bit. Go ahead. Well, I think I think the speech in particular highlighted two real, uh, you could call them paradoxes or hypocrisies, depending on where you are in the political spectrum, of, about Biden's speech yesterday. That is the major one from my point of view. He's just turned... Afghanistan into terrorist Disneyland. And that's, I think, why CIA and other folks are speaking out going, this is a disaster for intelligence gathering. It's a disaster for counterterrorism. Of course, the fruit, the, the fruits of that will be several years down the road, likely. So by, it's not going to be Biden's mess to clean up, most likely. Um, but I, the, uh, the other point to the empathy point that Abe made earlier, that was the other paradox, I think. This is a guy who ran, as, ran for president, arguing that his foreign policy was going to do two things. It was going to be humanitarian fueled, fueled by humanitarian impulse, and it was going to restore our standing in the international community. International institutions would now be able to look at America again as a full ally and a full partner. How do you think NATO is thinking about us right now? I can tell you in the UK, they're horrified. Uh, they're, you know, Parliament is coming back tomorrow, I believe, to, to discuss what's going on in Afghanistan. Our NATO allies have been somewhat muted in their response, but it's clear that this has shocked, you know, even even our NATO allies who saw in Joe Biden and foolishly believed Joe Biden understood foreign policy when he became president. So I think that those two things are now that speech uh, kind of eliminated any cover the media wants to give him for that. And I like Abe, I'm sort of shocked by how quickly some of the the covering was happening, like, oh, straight talk, you know, rhetorically saying the buck stops here is not the same thing as actually acting like the buck stops here. And he clearly was doing uh, the opposite uh, on the ground. Actually, it was exactly like um, during the the worst of like the rioting and looting last year, when Donald Trump simply said, I am your law and order president without actually doing anything to demonstrate that he was a law and order president. You've also, so Biden finished the speech by saying human rights is at the center, is at the heart of his foreign policy, having surrendered a nation uh, to um, a, 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 I don't know what you call it, an organization that ran a country that was the world's leading human rights offender when it was in charge of the country. So it's an interesting decision to to kind of play that card as opposed to the, okay, let's talk talkless as we say, you know, look, we should never have gone, we should never have done this the way we did it in the first place. And now I'm I'm ripping off the Band-Aid. I think the ultimate question here is, Fareed Zakaria said he ripped off the Band-Aid. People, you know, like he's, you know, he's he's doing, he didn't have to rip off the Band-Aid. That's precisely the point. Where was the demand that he rip off the Band-Aid? Where were the demonstrations demanding that we pull out of Afghanistan? Where was the public you know, screaming and crying about how we needed to get out of Afghanistan. There was no such demand there. The Band-Aid was on and it was stanching the blood and he ripped off the Band-Aid and the wound is suppurating as we are watching it. I don't understand this logic unless you come to it 
uh, before it even begins with the idea, well, we should be out. We should be out of Afghanistan. Here's the bullshit that I'm now going to lay out for you that you can tell your friends on Friday night at the dinner table when they want to have an argument with you about how you shouldn't have pulled out. I'm going to throw some crap at you. You can throw back at them. Yeah, I mean, look, I think there was that sense, especially by the end of the speech, where you can see people at the White House had read over the text and thought, well, what about this? What about that? And so they just said this and that. They just said human rights. They just <laughs> said counterterrorism, because what the speech was in itself was just a kind of bizarre surrender. And I, I would say what strikes me about this move is that it may actually be the first instance we've seen so far in Biden's term of him actually doing what he wants to do. And that's that's what this looks like. It doesn't look good. It's been really striking where when he, while he's been focused on domestic issues, he's basically been at the mercy of the of the Democratic coalition, swayed this way and swayed that way. There's nothing you could really say that has the stamp of Joe Biden on it. But getting out of Afghanistan is something Joe Biden has wanted to do for a very long time. He was arguing for it at the beginning of the Obama administration. He's been arguing for it ever since. And, you know, maybe what it ought to tell us is that we should be grateful that he has been such a weak president to this point and not done what he wants to do, because this is what that looks like. We should say that, you know, we're talking about this almost as though it's in the past tense. This is a very live crisis. Um, John Kirby, Pentagon spokesman on uh, TV today saying, you know, taking credit for the United States flying out uh, approximately 700, 800 individuals out of Kabul um, and a, a thousand troops. Uh, over the last 24 hours, but the Pentagon estimates, estimates that there are between 5,000 and 10,000 Americans in Afghanistan. They have no idea how many Americans are in Afghanistan. And the pace of evacuations only of those in their custody is far too narrow. We don't control this airport. We control the military side. We do not control the civilian side. We are operating at the beneficence of the Taliban. There are a lot of Americans in that city who have gone to ground. We don't know where they are, they're in danger, and we have no idea how to exfiltrate them. And what happens if the Taliban withdraws its beneficence? What happens if we have to secure the military or the airport by force? What happens if we have if they start taking hostages, if they start trying to use them as bargaining chips, if they start killing Americans? How, what, how do we respond to that? We have no response. No contingencies are operative here, uh, at least outside of the airport. Right. And 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 that's primary. And then secondary, of course, the tens of thousands of people on those lists that Abe mentioned uh, who uh, believe themselves to be in such mortal peril that they need to leave uh, their country and come to the United States because they're going to be murdered by this regime. Like 14 Um, to 20,000 people. Based on the paperwork, as we were talking yeah. about yesterday, their paperwork. And amazingly, as you say, Noah, there, there's not a list like that of Americans. One of the things that came up in, in the briefings they did for Congress over the weekend was just a simple question from a Democratic member of, do we have a census of the Americans in Afghanistan? Are we crossing people out as you take them out? And the answer is no. We don't know how many are there and where they are, what their names which, are. Which makes no sense either, because one presumes that if you are in Afghanistan, you are there with a visa. Why do we have a visa system except to track who is in country and who is not in country? That's insane. Isn't there a filing cabinet in which when you get a visa to go to Afghanistan, uh, you know, there's like that form is put in a file. I, I mean, I, again, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills when I hear this stuff. And it gets back to the point that I made at the beginning, which is 
does anybody know how to do anything anymore? The Pentagon couldn't respond to a reporter's question about whether or not they could say that American military equipment had been had fallen into the hands of the Taliban. They were asked that specific question about American military equipment and the Pentagon could provide no answer. That's ridiculous. Yeah, well, it That's their want, job. It didn't want to provide right. the answer because the Most answer likely. is obvious. The answer is yes. Maybe billions of dollars of American equipment. We don't know what happened at Bagram when we pulled out of Bagram. We don't know what's happening with the arms caches there. I, I mean, I, I don't think that there was any indication that we were flying out all of our equipment uh, and certainly the equipment that the Afghan army got from us. And Biden said, oh, we lavishly equipped them. Well, that is now in the hands of the Taliban. So Zaygazun to everybody there, as we say. Uh, and let me talk to you about our friends at the X chair. I mean, it's, I'm not really talking to you about, we don't really have friends at X-Chair. The X-Chair is your friend if you want the luxury supercar of office chairs with that patented dynamic variable lumbar support of long-standing, already best in class with incredible responsive low back support. And now with that new patent pending Elamax temperature regulation, if you're warm, the chair will cool you down. If you're hot, the chair will, uh, if you're, if you're uh, cold, the chair will heat you up and you'll get a massage from it. With that LMAX massage therapy, you can relax. Your comfort is guaranteed. You won't believe the difference until you feel it for yourself. Imagine regulating your body temperature and getting massage therapy while you're working. There has never been a better time to ditch that old no-name office chair and boost your productivity by treating yourself to the joys of X-Chair. So go to xchaircommentary.com. Now that's the letter X, the word chair, commentary.com, or call 1-844-4X-CHAIR to save $100 off your offer. X-Chair is a 30-day guarantee of complete comfort, and you can finance your purchase for as little as $30 a month. Go to xchaircommentary.com now and use code XWHEELS for free X-Wheel Blade Casters, xchaircommentary.com. Yuval, uh, it's a strange moment at which to discuss, to shift gears with this, you know, consuming fight. Um, but we are in the middle of a second front fight, the most important issue facing America before this happened with Afghanistan, which is the continuing battle with COVID. And your um, sensational article, which can be read right now at commentary.org, what we got right in the COVID fight, uh, we decided together that uh, it would be an interesting uh, thing to analyze uh, the, this extreme pessimism uh, that has arisen among uh, the elites in particular, but with the rise of the Delta variant and all of that, why we are unable to take a look at what has happened in the American response to COVID and not see how miraculous a lot of it was. And it goes to, and you lay out a kind of you know, short-term historical analysis of what happens when America gets into a crisis and how America pulls itself together in response. Yeah, you know, it, it, the, the, the point of looking at successes is not to deny the failures, and there's not been a shortage of failures in responding to the pandemic, but the way in which we try to learn lessons from the failures is so politicized now that all we see when we look at them is the other party, whatever the other party is. And so it seemed like it might make sense to look at successes instead, try to learn from those. And maybe 
by the sheer unfamiliarity of looking at things America does well, we might be able to see through some of our partisanship and learn a little bit about ourselves. And in a way, the, pur the purpose of the piece is really to think about how America responds to big challenges, to crises like these. Um, part of what I lay out is that there's really, there are broadly speaking, two ways to mobilize in response to a massive crisis like this. You might call them a mobilization of discipline on the one hand and of capacity on the other hand. Mobilizing discipline is like what Japan and South Korea and Taiwan did in response to the pandemic. They, re they reacted with centralized, organized, orderly rules that their people actually followed. And this is very effective. They were able to contain outbreaks much more effectively than we were. Um, the United States is not good at that kind of, of, of uh, mobilization of discipline. That's not what we do. And it's a problem. We should be better at it. But we're very good at mobilizing capacity, at mobilizing resources, power, money, ideas, dynamic action, private and public, in a way that can take on the scale of a challenge like this as no other country can. The thing about a response like that is that it starts out very messy because it's not coordinated and it's not centrally organized. And at first it looks like a failure. It looks like a disaster, but over time and often very quickly, it can, it can move mountains. I mean, it can do incredible things in the world by the sheer strength and dynamism of our society's ability to act. And you see that particularly in the, in the vaccine effort from beginning to end, from the miraculous response of America's biomedical sector all the way to the really quite extraordinary distribution effort that, uh, that took effect. But you can also see it even in some of Congress's response to the economic challenge of the crisis, which turned out to be massive and fairly effective in some ways, even though it started out as a total mess. You can see it in the response of the health system. You can see it in a lot of what America ended up doing, which characteristically, and this happens a lot in responding to natural disasters and other things, at the beginning, it looks like a total catastrophe, a mess. But by the time we're done complaining about the mess, we've failed to notice that we've actually responded with massive force and in a dynamic way that has been effective. So the United States has, has done a lot of things wrong in responding to this crisis. We still face a lot of problems, and a lot of those have to do with the fact that we're not good at discipline. That's why we're having trouble getting people to choose to be vaccinated it's why we're still facing a lot of problems just keeping track of what's going on in our country uh, when it comes to the outbreaks. But we are also very good at mobilizing capacity. And when we think about what we should be doing differently and better, how do we learn lessons? What do we do in the future? It's just important to know ourselves and to know what we're good at and what we're bad at so that we can build on our strengths rather than just complain about our weaknesses. You draw an interesting contrast between the Asian democracies and our country. You say that the Asian democracies were great at the beginning of the pandemic because they run countries and societies that are based on the notion of restraint, discipline, and self-control. So when you say to them, stay in your house, don't go two blocks away from where you live, we're going to check on you, put an app on your phone, we're going to shame you if you do wrong, the populations are generally compliant and they do what is necessary. And to the extent that that is one way of suppressing the outbreak of a contagion, that's great. We're terrible at that, as you say. But what we can do is generate a vaccine in eight months. And the thing that is really astonishingly 
uh, downplayed is get that vaccine into 200 million bodies. I mean, we hit today, uh, we are at 72% of Americans over 18 having at least one shot in their arms. Uh, we haven't obviously authorized the vaccine for everybody of every age. If you think about that, and you also think about the other mess, the beginning mess of the of the of the vaccination period when things that don't involve involved scarcity rather than abundance, right? Which is who's going to get it first? How are we going to ramp up? Who's going to get the uh, refrigerators to keep the really cold ones and all of that? And we were terrible at that tool. Once we got down how we were going to get everything everywhere, suddenly we went from a position of scarcity to insane abundance where we're hearing like we're throwing away vaccines because we have so much of them and not enough people are going to get vaccinated. And we take this for granted. Like no other place on earth in history could have done what we did here with a, with a population this large. Yeah, we're yeah, comparing ourselves to Israel or even Great Britain. Israel has nine, you know, 14 million people or nine. I mean, I, don't even know, I can't even remember how many. And Great Britain has 85 million. We have 330 million. People are complaining that we're not as good as Canada. Canada has 35 million people. Like, this is not remotely comparable anyway. Yeah, and absolutely. I think the, the, the scale is really the key here. And as you say, there are, diff there are two ways to deal with scarcity. One of them is to restrain your demand for the scarce thing, which is, which is what it is to respond with a kind of discipline. The other is to scale up your production of the scarce thing. And the United States did an amazing job over and over of dealing with scarcity by building up its capacity and its production and its action so that you know, we faced a shortage of ventilators and respirators and in some ways, I think a lot of people still believe we face that shortage because we complained about it so intensely for so long. The fact is we have such an incredible excess of those things now. We're giving them out for free to, to India and Sub-Saharan Africa. And not just because we're a generous country, we have nowhere to keep them. I mean, we have way too many because we decided we needed a lot more. And when America decides it needs a lot more, it knows how to make a lot more of whatever it is. And so I think it, it's important to see that there is a cost to be paid for our, for our indiscipline. And we do pay that cost. We are still in some ways paying it. But there's also an enormous benefit to our dynamism, to our productive capacity, to our ability ultimately to respond on a massive scale. And it is really worth seeing that whether it's about testing, which we absolutely screwed up horribly at the beginning, the, the scale up of testing that happened in the course of 2020 was an extraordinary thing. I mean, if it were not for vaccination, that would be the most amazing biomedical story uh, of, of our lifetimes. That's and another course, thing. Yeah. I just want to say quickly, that's another thing I think that um, the story of the initial failure has been the enduring, enduring story. Um, I don't think people realize that we that we scaled up as effectively as we did. That, 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 you, you still hear people say, well, if we had gotten the testing right, uh, we'd be in a different position today. But there was yeah, also one of the things that you've all pieced us so brilliantly is this contrast between capacity and discipline. I feel like a lot of the culture war stuff around our handling of the pandemic, the masks, the lockdowns, the behavioral stuff is in part a reflection, not just of partisanship, whether you have an R or a D after name, but this fact, the fact that the elite, particularly the technocratic elite who were making a lot of these policies 
did embrace the discipline side and they wanted people to behave in a way that, as you say, Yuval, it's just not us. And we do it. And, and at the same time, there was no recognition of who we are and how we tend to behave and what we do well. So I was it was so heartening, quite frankly, to read a very optimistic kind of optimistic realism of your piece, uh, particularly this week. But I, that point really struck me. But it's also, I think, this weird top down situation that we face, we face now. Emily Oster Brown, uh, who was one of the most commonsensical economic thinkers uh, that we have, uh, is writing very uh, eloquently this complaint about how um, even now we don't have any idea about what is going on with the Delta variant because not only this, did the CDC, again, top down, refuse to stop collecting information on breakthrough infections for reasons that are completely elusive. Like it said, well, you know, they have resource issues, you know, they 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 need to they need to husband their resources because it's expensive. It's like, really, who's gonna who's gonna hold up the CDC spending money on stuff like that? But but now it's like one way that you can figure out what the penetration is of the Delta variant and how many people who aren't vaccinated uh have had COVID is to do random testing. You do national random testing, like survey data, and that would give you a sense of people. You would you would do a test, you would ask them if they were vaccinated, you would ask through their vaccination card, and then you would know that if 72% of adults have been have had at least one shot, but 90% have antibodies, you would then know that A, we were approaching herd immunity, and B, that we had you know, that we knew where we were uh, at any given moment. We have no such data. And we, but if this were a private sector matter, if there was a profit motive involved, if Pfizer or Moderna actually had a financial interest, let's say, in finding or figuring this out, I got a feeling we'd find out about it. It's that there are these panels of, of, of you know, GS-15s who are making these decisions and saying, we'll do this, but we're not going to do that for reasons that we don't entirely understand. And yeah, that's you know, another the, the aspect. CDC, the CDC is really the poster child of this failure of self-understanding. The CDC is built on the premise that is the premise of a lot of kind of progressive thinking about contemporary America, that when trouble strikes, the solution is now we should become Denmark and, and address this in a totally different way than we do everything else in American life. Well, the fact is, when trouble strikes, we're still America. And the question is, how are we going to deal with this? So that a lot of the CDC's planning is built on the premise that they're going to impose discipline in a crisis, which isn't likely to work. A lot of their planning is built on the notion that they can centralize information collection. And the failure of the CDC to collect basic information is one of the most amazing things about the last year and a half. They are still weeks behind in telling us what's going on in hospitals. And we get information from sources like Bloomberg News, which just calls around to, to local health officials. They just hired a bunch of interns to make phone calls. And their information is much more useful to policymakers than what the CDC produces because they don't use what we're good at. They don't use the kinds of incentives, the kinds of strengths, the kinds of things we do well. They try to do what we're bad at and push against the grain over and over and over and, you know, it's still not working because we're still Americans. Yeah, it's been a rough year, but our country is what it is. And we should think about what it is very, very capable at 
and try to address our problems by empowering those kinds of strengths and abilities more. Um, let me just uh, take a step back for a minute and talk to you about our second sponsor today, Aura. Um, the way you use the internet has changed dramatically over the last decade, but security tools have mostly stayed the same. Aura provides complete digital security to help protect your online accounts, finances, devices, and more all in one easy to use app. Between your photos, devices, and connections, and finances, your world is more online than ever. You may have security systems in place for real life, but you don't really have them for your online life. Aura can sound the alarm <laughs> if your digital presence is at risk. It provides digital security protection to keep your online finances, personal information, and tech safe from online threats. It's all-in-one protection from identity theft, financial fraud, malware, scam sites, and so much more. With Aura, you'll get alerted to fraud and threats fast, like if your online accounts or passwords were leaked online, or if someone tries to open a bank account in your name and it's easy to set up. All plans come with $1 million in identity theft insurance to help recover your stolen funds and experienced US-based customer support that's got your back. And right now, Aura has a limited time offer for our listeners to get early access and three free months when you visit aura.com slash commentary. Go to aura.com slash commentary to get access before anyone else and three months for free for a limited time. That's aura.com slash commentary. Yuval, uh, as, a, as a longtime observer of, of Washington and all of this, I think Christine uh, gets at something very interesting when she said that the elites wanted to use, uh, you know, discipline, restraint, control, and that this is part of the reason for the uh, uh, counter response uh, of people saying, don't tell me to put on a mask. Don't tell me what I'm supposed to do. You know, that's the Gaston flag from 1783, right? Don't tread on me. You know, I, you know, you have no business telling me what to do. And that, and that uh, under those circumstances, um, we have a very bifurcated country. We have like rule followers and people who do what they're told and line up very orderly fashion. And then we have people who go their own way and do things their own way. And they still don't break the law. They still, they, 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 they get, a, they do, they don't follow the structures that are mandated for them. And, um, and there is a fantastically interesting culture war between them, kind of mutual demonization, the, the, the restraint people say that these other people want to kill everybody and are selfish and they're mean and they're awful and they're, they're being a horrible. And then the, the freer, let's say, or more libertarian say, the whole purpose of this is to control me. It's not about the vaccine. It's all about control. You're just trying to mandate control to break our spirit so that we will do whatever you tell us about whatever you tell us whenever that happens. Um, that has now come to be a kind of weird right-left split. It's not historically a right-left split at all. I mean, when I was a kid, the left was much more likely to be in the second camp than in the first. Um, what are the practical, this is not resolvable, I don't think, except for the fact that by the middle of September, 75% of the country is going to be fully vaccinated or close to 80. So at what, where is this mysterious Trump is failing to get everybody vaccinated thing? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think that there's a way that this represents a kind of insider-outsider difference in American life that didn't used to be a left-right difference, but now is. Um, and if anything, the left thought of itself as the outside in the middle of the 20th century, and the right thought of itself as at least rightfully speaking the inside. And so the, the, this kind of anti-establishment attitude was more common on the left than on the right. It is now absolutely definitive of the right's way of thinking. Um, and it is t it has totally shaped how we've thought about the pandemic. In a sense, everybody was saying everything proves the other party is just the worst. And then this pandemic happens and people said, well, this pandemic proves that the other party is just the worst. And it's the only way that we can interpret anything. But again, when you look at what we've done well and poorly, it is really when we've recognized that this is not an order following country so that the, the, the congressional response to the virus was not a set of rules. It was it was a bunch of money. It was basically saying, here, go. Um, the, the health system response ultimately that worked was not criteria for triage. It was it was building capacity, enormous field hospitals. It was a system that never ran out of hospital space. The, the, the deployment of vaccines, at first, it tried to be a triage system of saying first this age group and then that occupation. And ultimately, all of that was just thrown in the garbage. And what we needed was just more vaccine doses. And we got them spread around so that the notion that we could respond to this by somehow changing the basic character of our culture uh, has not worked, but has not been abandoned. I mean, I, th I still think there are a lot of people who at least implicitly think that this is a crisis that shows that the basic character of our culture needs to change. And to the degree that that is what policymakers and citizens in general think, I just think we're going to bang our head into the wall over and over and over. And we just have to recognize that what we do well is give people the resources to make their own decisions and to build capacity in their in their own ways. And, you know, if we can see that, then we'll handle the rest of this crisis well. If not, we won't. But I, I, the second point you make, I think, is very important, John. We're actually doing very well in vaccinating people. And politics is holding us from seeing that, too. If you look at the demographic breakdown of vaccination, the factor that really matters is age. People over the age of 65 are vaccinated at rates that are amazing, I mean, almost 90% now. And as you go down the age distribution, you go down vaccination rates, too. And what really matters is younger people are not vaccinated. Older people are. That doesn't break down politically. You know, Fox News viewers are 70 years old and they're all vaccinated. I mean, they're practically all vaccinated. It's just not the case that what we're looking at is a country breaking down along political lines. There are other ways to think about this that could help us better understand how to succeed and again, our political culture is just not in a place to see it. So we've got to find ways to break through. So our success like in, in vaccinations is you know, most apparent when you look at the rest of the world, right? Where I think it's approximately 15% of the global population is fully vaccinated, which is by no means where we want to be. Kind of contrasts very strongly with us. Uh, and yet we're doubling down on these mitigation measures uh, in order to isolate and secure and, and preserve this 15% of our population that remains unvaccinated, very small population. And the justification for that is, well, some variant could emerge that will, you know, evade or circumvent the protections, the immunization that, that we have from, from our vaccines. If that was your true concern, 
you would be maniacally focused on vaccinating the rest of the planet. Where did Delta come from? It came from India. It didn't come from Mississippi. And that's where the next variant will emerge abroad. And there really is no way to stop you. Nobody's going to close the borders and stop. Even if you did, there's still, it's porous enough so that it will find its way into this country. But they're not doing that. They're not focusing on that. They're focusing on us and imposing measures and restrictions on us and lobbying us to get to 100%, near 100% vaccination rates, which seems to me only an exercise of agency for its own sake, just to demonstrate that we can do something, something when we really have no control over, over the trajectory of this pandemic outside of our borders, which is where we should be focused. Well, maybe. I mean, I, I think that's a that's an interesting point. And of course, uh, there was a there was a highly controversial and I think outrageous effort to change that focus a couple of months ago by by upending uh, the patent protections uh, for the vaccines to sort of hand out the formulas uh, outside the United States so that other countries and other places could ramp up. Uh, production, which uh, seems, by the way, to have faded completely, I think, largely because Angela, Angela Merkel defending BioNTech's part of the mRNA patent was like, uh, no way, buddy. Uh, that's our that's our property or that's German. You no, know, that's property of a German company. You're not you're not handing it out for for nothing. And that's also not a good way to ramp up. Well, the point the point that I'm trying to make, though, is I just don't yeah. think I, that it's sincere. I don't I don't think that this, you know, there is some sincerity and honesty in the fear of, of a new variant, but our policy response to it is so unserious and so missing misses the point so completely that I can't imagine that it's our actual objective. The objective seems to me to be the exercise of uh, bureaucratic control for its own sake, because it's not going to do what they want it to do. Its stated objective is not going to be secure by these measures. There's a little bit of this that's that's like the global warming debate, where the real problem is in India and China, and our response is, well, we've got to restrain American capitalism. Uh, there, there's an element of that here, but obviously there's also more going on. I mean, I I, I think the fears are uh, the fears are honest fears. They're not well grounded much of the time, but they're genuinely felt. I mean, I think we're really learning something about a lot of our fellow citizens in how people are responding. To, to this crisis, learning something about ourselves. And, you know, it's not all good. I mean, I think ultimately we're, we're, we're finding a real inability to deal with reality, with good news and with bad news and with risk and in all kinds of ways, uh, finding that we're just not very good at, uh, as a political culture at handling this kind of, of enormous crisis. I, I think, yeah, on that point, you know, I'm just thinking about your, your piece broadly. And it occurs to me that, that part of why our toxic partisan divide can be so dispiriting is because we're unable to recognize success because it's gotten to the point where the idea is that the other side, whatever side that is for, for any individual, um, its existence prohibits entirely any success that would be enjoyed broadly, right? Nothing can be good so long as uh, the, the Democrats are doing this or so long as uh, Trump is doing that. There can be no success worth recognizing um, because the other side is this full impediment to 
uh, success. This is a sort of byproduct of, 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 of uh, our partisanship now where the, the stakes are so high that, uh, that the other side has to destroy everything in, in your mind. So nothing, no good can be recognized at all. Yeah, if we're living at the edge of the abyss and the next election will decide whether we live or die, then you can't just say, you know what, America is a great country. Um, And quite apart from the pandemic, we just can't say it at all. Nobody wants to hear it, but it's it's just so obviously true. And with that lack of crushing morosity, we will call close to today's proceedings. Yuval Levin, thank you as ever. Go to commentary.org and read what we got right in the COVID fight by Yuval Levin from our September issue. Everything else from the September issue is also up at commentary.org, where we give you a few free reads and ask you to subscribe. You should subscribe. Subscribe already. What's the matter with you? Subscribe. And for Abe, uh, Noah, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. Mm-hmm.